Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Aaron Weinacht with New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, and that's a channel on the New Books Network. And our guest here today is Dr. Charles Halperin, uh, who has authored a brand new book on Ivan IV of uh, Russia. So thanks for being with us today, Charles. You're welcome. Okay, so could you start us off by giving us a little bio on yourself, uh, where you went to school, maybe how you got interested in Russian history, who you studied with, things of that nature? Certainly. I was born in Brooklyn, New York in 1946. I think my interest in Russia arose from a picture book in the children's section of the local public library about Russian history. Uh, I read every book in the children's section on history in that library, but that one made an impression on me, and maybe that's what influenced my later choice. I got my bachelor's degree from Brooklyn College in 1967. And then I went to Columbia University, where I work with Michael Chernyovsky. The first semester I was in graduate school, Chernyovsky offered a colloquium on Ivan the Terrible. And I've been fascinated with the subject ever since, although I did not write my dissertation on it. My dissertation was on Russia and the Mongols, and I completed that in 1973. So, uh, uh, so your uh, fascination with uh, Ivan has been truly lifelong. Then I think I think I discovered Dostoevsky when I was in junior high and read Crime and Punishment. And I think that's where my addiction started. Yeah. Uh, so I wonder. Uh, you know, Ivan is kind of a mysterious character, and so I was wondering. If uh, for the uninitiated, you might take a little time to explain what factors generally account for the bad reputation that's attached to, to Ivan's name. You know, where are these, in your view, just kind of myths? Where does Ivan's reputation seem to have a, a basis in some real evidence? Is that something you could comment on? Certainly. Uh, what we now accept as the, the, the stereotype image of Ivan the Terrible was generated by his enemies during wartime. Uh, Muscovy invaded what was called Livonia. It's now Estonia and Latvia. And eventually his enemies included in particular Poland. And the Poles and the Germans who lived in Livonia generated all of the atrocity stories, which basically form Ivan's negative image to this day. 16th century warfare was not polite. Both sides committed numerous atrocities, which are well documented, but they did exaggerate a great deal, and they also invented a great deal. Ivan undoubtedly did more than enough to deserve his reputation of being terrible. It's just that he did not do a lot of the things of which this wartime propaganda accused him of. The problem is that in trying to figure out what accurate and what's not accurate is that uh, is the kinds of sources we have and the kinds of sources we don't have. What we don't have are any private documents from Muscovy. So all the views of Ivan written about Ivan in Russia at the time represent government or official or official church documents. We don't have any memoirs in which someone could give his honest opinion without worrying about being executed the next day for insulting the czar. Uh, all of the sources we have, although quite a number, but they, they all have their limitations, and it's very difficult to get any real sense of Ivan's personality and his private feelings from the kinds of sources we have. So... Uh, um... I guess, I guess the next thing I was wondering if you could uh, uh, do a kind of explanation for the uninitiated on is, um, 
exactly what the Oprich Nina was, uh, that being, you know, one of the things that, uh, it is, it is impossible to, uh, understand Ivan if you cannot explain the Oprichnina. It is a, a unique policy. It was done only by Ivan. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> it was not imitated by any of his successors uh, up until Stalin because the Oprichnina wound up being the instrument through which he imposed mass terror on Russia. Technically, the Aprichna was a private, personal, separate domain he established for himself in 1565, one which was outside the control of the government. It had its defined territory. It had its own personnel, who were called Oprichniki, and it was exempt from government rule. Officially, Ivan said he created it in order to fight traitors, and he did use it for that purpose as well. Uh, the Aprichna undoubtedly had more than one purpose. It was a very complicated institution. He probably did not need the Aprichna to go after the people he called traitors, which is the irony of the situation, which also led me to believe that while it may have been one of his motives, it could not have been his primary motive. The Aprichniki were set apart from all other Russians in a great variety of very symbolic ways. They wore black clothing, they rode black horses, they had dogs' heads and broom broomsticks on their on their horses' manes to symbolize that they were the dogs of the Tsar and they would sweep the land clear of treason. They had to take an oath in which they promised to have no communication with anyone who was not even the Aprichna, even if that included their parents. And finally, uh, some of them, but probably not all of the Aprishniki, formed a kind of pseudo-monastic order with a very rigorous religious uh, schedule that they performed at his capital in Alexandria Slobodá. Ivan did did not need any of these things justify traitors. And therefore, I am inclined to interpret what the Aprishna was primarily about in terms of that symbolism rather than viewing those semiotic signs as a sidebar, which was separate from the real purpose of the Aprishna, which was fighting treason. What, uh, what do you think were the, were the reasons that Yvonne was so concerned about treason uh, to begin well, with? Well, that brings us to, to, to what are really the three main interpretations of why Yvonne did anything. Uh, the most prominent, in part because it's the easiest, the simplest, is that Ivan was insane. Uh, he was paranoid, and that's why he thought everybody was against him. Uh, he was a megalomaniac, me- megalomaniac, that's why he wanted absolute power. Uh, and he was a sex pervert, which is why he was married seven times. Unfortunately, that he was insane doesn't explain anything. Uh, I consider the insanity thesis to be simply an admission that we don't know why he did what he did, because a lot of the actions he took look eminently rational, and a lot of the mistakes he made, uh, such as starting a war which lasted 25 years and he lost, have been committed by political leaders who are perfectly sane, just wrong. The second theory of the Prishna is that he was after traitors, and that's partially true. The problem is that very few people, except uh, his apologists, claim that everyone he executed was guilty. So you have to explain why he executed people who were innocent, why he suspected people who were innocent. And that brings us back to the insanity thesis and to his suspiciousness was so extreme that he was actually paranoid. Recently, there's a third explanation which takes the symbolism seriously, but to my mind, uh, misinterprets it. It is that the symbols are religious and therefore the, the main purpose of the Aprishna was religious. What was that purpose? Ivan and Russians expected the apocalypse imminently. And in order to prepare the Russian people for the last judgment, he wanted to purge sin in the land. I don't think this is uh, this is suggestive of some of the symbolism he used 
but there's no evidence from his writings that he expected the last judgment imminently. He expected ultimately to be judged by God. In fact, he claimed no one else could judge him except God, certainly not his subjects and certainly not foreigners. But his actions are not completely consistent with the idea that his purpose was religious. They're too political, they're too pragmatic. They seem to be driven by the idea that things are going to continue the way they are rather than stop, and history will stop with the second coming. My feeling is that the symbolism is still the key to what Ivan was doing. He was setting up a separate realm in which he could function, in which he could avoid the obligations of being a ruler, uh, which conflicted with his religious beliefs, in that to be a good ruler, he had to be a bad Christian. In other words, he had to use capital punishment. The problem Ivan faces, he was just not willing to give up power. And if he did not give up power, he could not stop doing what he what he was supposedly not supposed to do. And therefore, to my mind, the Aprishna was uh, was doomed to failure from its very beginning in terms of that purpose, uh, because Ivan would not let go of the reins of power. In addition, he did not anticipate that the Aprishna would create real opposition by its existence. The fact that he had divided the realm, the fact that the Aprishniki had were above the law. And so he gradually had to escalate his uh, repressive measures to meet unexpected opposition from people who had previously been his supporters. At that point, a process took, took place, which is familiar to all cases that we know of in history of mass terror. Mass terror escalates because it creates its own opposition. It escalates until it becomes general irrational terror. Uh, At that point, it becomes dangerous to the person who created it. Ivan, I don't think, intended to create mass terror. But when it got out of hand, he had no choice, really, but to uh, execute, remove, and in many cases, execute the leading Apriciki and terminate the Apriciki. What he had not taken into account was what happened when you give a group of people the power to do anything they want that's outside the law. They tend to take advantage of it. Ivan wanted the Aprishniki to kill the people he told them to kill. They started killing and robbing anybody they wanted to. This was not good for him. Uh, the reason they did that, I think, lies in the social history of 16th century Muscovy. The Aprishniki were recruited largely among gentry who were having a hard time making financial ends meet who were having a hard time maintaining their social status, and who were suffering major uh, demographic losses in in Ivan's wars. And they wanted to let off steam against everybody and anybody. And unfortunately, the Oprishna gave them the opportunity to do so. In one sense, though, the mass terror would have been would have contributed to another of Ivan's purposes. He claimed he wanted absolute unlimited authority. We know from his government documents he knew he did not have it because he's constantly, I mean, he did not think the Russian people were servile. He did not think they were listening to his orders. We've got dozens and dozens of, of memos he sent out to officials berating them for not carrying out the orders he sent them. But it is always true anywhere a ruler wants to be absolute that the best way to prove you're an absolute ruler is random terror because random terror means no one feels safe if terror is directed at people who do certain things someone can say well i'm not going to do those things therefore i will not be a victim of terror random terror makes everyone insecure because it is deliberately irrational Uh, And this means that everyone has to obey Ivan because they're at risk. Irrational terror can therefore become rational. But again, the irrational terror must be at Ivan's orders. Terrorists who are inflicting random terror 
on their own initiative are just as much a threat to Ivan's authority uh, as real opponents were. Uh, it's peculiar that the mass terror, random terror, was never copied by any other Muscovite ruler, any imperial Russian ruler, and not even the early Soviets who were directing the terror against deliberately uh, identified targets until Stalin, because it remains the only way you can terrorize an entire society is to act irrationally. If you act rationally, then you don't need absolute power and people don't think you have it. Does, uh, Something I thought of when I when I read your book uh, was that when you were talking about this this terror and Ivan's desire to be a, an absolute ruler, uh, I immediately thought of how that might uh, square with the, the the view held by a number of historians that the Muscovite autocracy was actually kind of a facade, and so maybe he was. Uh, uh, you know, trying to turn that situation around. Uh, is, that a, is that a thesis that you think has some merit or do you think it has problems? Uh, well, uh, Ivan's reign is so complicated and so contradictory. Uh, it's as complicated and contradictory as his personality was that no theory can adequately explain everything. The theory of Muscovite autocracy as a facade was a reaction to theories which ascribed excessive authority to Ivan, which did not take into account the limitations that uh, technology imposed upon him. Any modern democratically elected Republican uh, leader of a republic has more power than Ivan ever had in his life or even expired to have in his life because of communication and transportation. I mean, Ivan had great authority in Moscow. The farther away you left from Moscow, the lower his authority was. So this was a reaction against uh, excessive uh, overestimations of Ivan's authority. And it has a certain degree of value. It is not helpful in trying to understand the Aprishna. Uh, because the Aprishna was not a facade. There are other historians who take a different tack and say that previous rulers had claimed absolute authority, but Ivan operationalized it. Well, the fact is, even during the Aprichna, he did not exercise absolute authority. He really made a greater pretense of, 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 of having it. Uh, he always claimed it. My feeling after studying Ivan for 20 years is that he knew he did not have absolute power. And when he said he wanted absolute power, it was not because he expected to get it. Uh, it was that he thought that by expressing the legitimacy of absolute power, he would gain more power. But I do not think Ivan was foolish enough to believe that he could rule without advisors. Given the nature of communications at the time, that would have been physically impossible. He wouldn't have known what was going on in the country. Ivan never got rid of all his advisors. He had a problem keeping them for very long because he wound up <laughs> being disappointed. This is not uh, unusual with egomaniacs. Uh, but he never, uh, he never thought he could rule without them. If he got rid of an advisor, he replaced him with a different advisor. The real debate in, in, in Muscovy at the time was not over autocracy or not autocracy. My conclusion after reading the polemical literature is that the issue for Ivan was not really autocracy. It was, yes, he claimed to be an autocrat, and he had some theories on that, but it wasn't what was primary in his mind. In his mind, simply claiming to be czar was sufficient. That he was also an autocrat was sort of implicit in being czar. He didn't make a big deal out of it. And no one denied he was czar. In fact, no one really denied he was autocrat. The question was, how should an autocrat behave? Well, in fact, there's no disagreement on that either. Uh, the standard Christian virtues were, were expected of a ruler. And in some cases, for example, piety and being philanthropic towards monasteries and churches. Ivan 
subscribe to that uh, behavioral uh, regime. And I, uh, the ruler, and this is something which the facade theory emphasized, which was useful, was supposed to consult his advisors. This was a sign of a good ruler, of a good czar, even of a good autocrat. The question was, are you consulting good advisors or bad advisors? And there's a lot of room for disagreement there. Ivan insisted he was listening to good advisors and getting rid of bad advisors. And his major ideological opponent, uh, writing safely from emigration in Poland, thought that Ivan was listening to bad advisors and getting away with getting rid of good advisors. And that was the nature of the ideological dispute between them. To, to phrase it in terms of absolute power or autocracy um, misstates the concepts which Ivan and his opponents and supporters at the time were using. Um, and it leads too easily to anachronism. That on that same uh, same uh, track, there uh, something that I thought was quite interesting in your book that I've not seen in other sources is that you've really taken a comparative approach, uh, which seemed quite valuable to me. Um, so, how does in terms of trying to exercise power uh, in in the Russian context, what what points of comparison in other places at the same time? Uh, you know, do you think are important to look at, and what what kind of light do those shed on on Ivan's problems with exercising power as the monarch? Well, all early modern monarchs <laughs> faced uh, uh, basically the same two problems, uh, and they're both connected with what is was usually called state building. Uh, number one was relationships with your with your aristocracy, with your elite. The, the flaw in previous theories was uh, people tended to take an, an, uh, an all-or-nothing approach. Uh, either he was subservient to the elite, which could tell him what to do, or they were subservient to him and, and, and they did whatever he said. Uh, the ruler's relationship with his elite is dynamic. It's a matter of, of continuing, unceasing negotiation. And all other rulers in 16th century Europe faced the same problem. The second was to get leverage against the elite, and simply because there weren't simply not enough members of the elite to perform all government functions, you needed some administrative apparatus, which usually called a bureaucracy. And therefore, all rulers faced the job of building a bureaucracy without losing control of policy to the bureaucrats, which is very important, and without imputing his relationship with the aristocracy at the same time. It's not the aristocracy and the bureaucracy were, were enemies, but the relationship with them was also a matter of constant negotiation. Uh, nobles do not gladly take orders from non-nobles. Uh, moreover, the bureaucrats knew they were socially inferior to the nobles. The question is the, the quid pro quo. What's the, what are they negotiating about? Uh, 16th century Russian bayars were more than happy to borrow money from bureaucrats. They didn't think there was anything demeaning in that because the fact you owed money to a bureaucrat didn't make that bureaucrat your social equal anyway. If you look at the literature on, say, Henry VIII and Elizabeth I, and let alone Mary Tudor, from the jaundiced perspective of Ivan the Terrible, you realize their subjects, particularly their elite, thought those rulers were just as arbitrary as Muscovites think Ivan was. Uh, the stories go that if uh, you know if Henry Henry VIII or Elizabeth were walk were you know making a, per, a ceremonial entry into the court, if if you looked at them funny, they would send you off to the tower to be tortured. Uh, this is the same mechanism I mentioned previously about being arbitrary. If you really want to prove you have power, you act arbitrarily so that everyone's afraid of you. And this was very common across Europe. Now, of course, there is no one European pattern of, 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 of political organization in the 16th century. There were elected monarchs. There were rulers who were much more restrained in the authority they had. There were composite states in which the ruler had much less authority in some parts of the realm than in others. This is a spectrum. Uh, 
England lurks well, uh, compares well to Russia uh, because it is not a composite state and has a stronger bureaucracy. And because of its size, the aristocracy is much more in physical contact with the ruler uh, than in, in, in more geographically dispersed states, even, even France. But it's still the case. The ruler exercises the most authority over the people who are in physical proximity, which means the court. After thinking, I spent about three months reading about European rulers from this perspective, and I reached a conclusion which I had not anticipated. Ivan the Terrible is, in a number of ways, very unlike all the rulers of Moscow who preceded him and all the rulers of Moscow who succeeded him. Uh, I've mentioned one thing, which is the use of terror. Ivan was also charismatic. I only started developing this idea after the book went to press. Uh, charisma is a morally neutral quality. You know, bad guys can be charismatic, good guys can be charismatic. And Ivan, no matter what interpretation, interpretation you take of his character, made an impression. You did not forget meeting Ivan the Terrible. And this was a function of his charisma. And in terms of his use of arbitrary power and charisma, I think Ivan was more similar to contemporary European rulers than he was to his own predecessors and successors. I don't think this is a function of European influence. I mean, Ivan didn't look at Ivan the, uh, at Henry VIII and say, gee, I want to have as many wives as Henry VIII had. <laughs> Uh, nor did he look at someone like Cesare Borgia and say, gee, what a great idea. Poison your enemies. Uh, <laughs> the Russians had, had uh, and they did, Russians didn't need the Mongols to teach them how to do these things either, by the way. Uh, all rulers seem to have a sound appreciation of how much violence they can get away with. And even sometimes they can't get away with. It does seem par for the course. Yes. Uh, uh this is something I learned from Chernyovsky. Chernyovsky was not a big advocate of, of foreign influence, but he was a very big advocate of what he called parallel development. That is, the historical processes of, 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 of territorial expansion, centralization of authority, bureaucratization, and such in what we call Europe uh, and what we call Russia were parallel, and therefore they generated the same kinds of interactions among the participants. This is not foreign influence. Uh, Chernyovsky did not think in the, the article he was writing during the time he was teaching the colloquium, my first semester at Columbia, was Ivan the Terrible as a Renaissance prince, uh, one of the most famous articles he ever wrote. And he did not mean by that that Ivan had read Machiavelli. He compares what Ivan wrote to what Machiavelli wrote and found a great deal of, of identity, but not because Ivan had read Machiavelli, but because they'd reached the same conclusions analyzing comparable political situations. This is a point which has been lost on like 95% of the people who've read that article. But I find it very convincing. In, in the great debate over what is usually called Russian exceptionalism, uh, I'm on the anti-exceptional camp. I think Russia, uh, I think that, that there's no such thing as one European model. And they talk about the fact Muscovy was not democratic in the 16th century is ludicrous. No country was democratic in the 16th century in, the, in, in modern terms of what democracy means. The range of, of, of political structures in what we call Europe a very vague geographic term, let alone historical term, was so great that I think there's more than enough room for, for 16th century Muscovy to be considered European. Uh, every so-called European country differs from every other so-called European country in one way or another. Uh, in Muscovy, it was probably the absence of Roman law which meant that there were no constitutional limits on Ivan's authority. Uh, but the theory that the reason the, the aristocracy was servile is that they lacked constitutional privileges is, is way off the mark. They didn't need constitutional law to be servile. They had customary law. They knew exactly what Ivan was supposed to do and not supposed to do. 
and they had it within their authority to 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 be political actors in that context. Countries which had Roman, uh, my favorite example of this in terms of modern European history, is that all of the legal institutions that Muscovy did not have, feudalism, corporate estates, Magdeburg law, parliaments and all, Roman law, were all present in Germany, and Germany produced Hitler. So much <laughs> for the fact that being European guarantees you wind up a democratic republic. I don't buy it. So for 16th century, I think, and this was, again, one of the, the contributions of the, of the facade school, uh, in that the advocates of the facade school are also against Russian exceptionalism. And what they've proven by their research, whether you accept the facade theory or not, is that there are many ways in terms of social history and political history in which looking at what was going on in, 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 in England and France and Germany and less often in Sweden and, and even in Italy and Spain, is very useful for identifying aspects of 16th century Muscovite history to which we have not paid enough attention. It doesn't have to be identical. It can be similar. Or it can simply raise questions that we hadn't thought of before. So it's a very useful uh, approach to take. But Ivan will, f- will frustrate any attempt at a single uh, monopolistic interpretation of his reign, neither insanity, nor the facade, nor autocracy, nor Mongol influence. No one theory is ever going to be able to encompass everything that went on during the 50 years of Ivan's reign. You, uh, as you're talking about uh, Ivan there, it occurred to me that uh, uh, maybe on the, on the idea of arbitrary, uh, arbitrary power, I mean, could we could we look at that as being one of Ivan's central legacies to later rulers, even if they weren't as charismatic as he was? Uh, no, I don't maybe. think so. I don't think so. Um, it has taken me so long to to get a handle on Ivan the Terrible. A friend of mine, a colleague, being excessively optimistic when she wrote that I had, that, that Ivan had finally met his match in me. No one is a match for Ivan the Terrible. Forget that idea. Uh, In order to focus on Ivan, I had to put aside a question which is very important, but outside my competence. What was Ivan's impact on Russian history? He's been blamed for everything. He's been blamed most of all by by leftists uh, for turning... Muscovy away from the path of uh, quote unquote European development and towards what is often called Asiatic despotism and turning. Well, the 17th century Muscovite rulers did not know they were imitating Ivan the Terrible and they did not exercise the kind of authority that's ascribed to them by that theory. Uh, this is something I feel rather safe in saying. They claim to be. And the Romanovs claimed erroneously to be descended from Ivan. They're not, of course, they're descended from the family of Ivan's first wife, Anastasia. But they did not imitate him. In fact, they went out of their ways to avoid imitating him. 17th century Romanov rulers were particularly averse to executing members of the, of the aristocracy. This is very un-Ivan-like. And Therefore, they did not act arbitrarily. Again, if we, if we stop looking for uh, a theory that will apply to all periods of Russian history, there is, it is clear that Ivan set a negative example for rulers after him to follow, at least in Muscovy. Once you get to Peter the Great in the 18th century, there are other uh, processes at work which are... Uh, something for modern Russian historians to look at. Ivan tried arbitrary terror to enhance his power. It did not work. It destroyed the country. In the 17th century, rulers make it a point not to imitate Ivan. They make it a point to listen to their advisors, although the same problem arose if you think of uh, Alexei Mikhailovich and and, and his... uh, but his father-in-law, his brother-in-law, I don't remember, 
are you listening to good advisors or bad advisors? That's a constant. That's true down through Nicholas II, of course. Um, but Ivan did not leave either a, a legacy or a mechanism which would permit, which permitted later rulers of Russia to act as arbitrarily as he did. And indeed, in the last part of his reign, in his last years, of course, he's, he's, he's also got physical problems by then. He does not act the same way he does during the Apprecian. I mean, Ivan abolished the Apprecian in 1572. He continued occasionally to order executions, but he never tried mass terror again. So even he didn't think that mass terror was the way to go long term. Uh... Which is why the argument that Ivan didn't abolish the appreciation, he only renamed it so it would be less contra- it would look less controversial, does not convince me. What Ivan got rid of in 1572 were all the semiotic elements of the appreciation, and I think they were the appreciation. But it would yeah. take another 20 years to try to evaluate even Ivan's impact short term which is on the reigns of, of his son, uh, Fyodor Ivanich and Ambarish Gadunov. The one thing we know for sure is that during the time of troubles, when the Muscovite Bayars are, in effect, negotiating who's going to be ruler, either with a Russian, Vasily Shusky, or with uh, Vladislav, the son of the King, of, uh, King Sigismund of Poland, the, the, the guarantees they want you will not execute anyone arbitrarily. You will not execute relatives of someone who's been convicted. You will not seize land. They're thinking about Ivan. There's no question of it in my mind. Even the 17th century penitentials add questions for rulers, which are obviously based upon a very simple premise. You're not supposed to act the way Ivan did. It's a sin. So Ivan had an impact, but a negative impact on at least political structure during the time of troubles, political uh, practices and and concepts and presuppositions and theories. People did not want a ruler to imitate Ivan. And in this, of course, they were successful, uh, even after Mikhail Romanov comes to the throne. Yeah, I want to go back for a second to the uh, the comparative point there. Something you said about Machiavelli kind of uh, uh, gave me an idea there. Uh, that was it. Uh, if you, you may have read uh, Machiavelli more recently than me, but uh, I seem to recall a line in The Prince where he's talking about somebody in the in the past, I think it may have been a guy named Agathocles of Syracuse who invited all his enemies to dinner and then had them murdered. Um, and I think I think Machiavelli says that uh, when you behave that way, uh, you can win power but not glory. And uh, is that is that kind of what you're you're after here? That uh, you know, Ivan's uh, pursuit of power, you know, may have won him a good pit of power at the time, but then in hindsight, like Machiavelli said, he didn't get much glory since people saw him as what to avoid and not what to do. Uh, it's a good question, but I wouldn't phrase it that way. Uh, one of the a few ways, a few parts of Chernyavsky's theory that I, that I do not agree with is that he, he attributed to Ivan uh, the desire for glory. It's based upon uh, Renaissance Italian practice. Uh, his favorite story was of a man who was standing on the parapet of a castle and in front of him the, the Pope and the, and the Emperor were carrying on a conversation. And afterwards, the man berates himself that if he had pushed them both over the edge and killed them both simultaneously, he'd have been famous forever. (laughs) Uh, That's a very Italian Renaissance. Chernyavsky drew a very productive distinction between the Southern Renaissance, by which he meant Italy, and the Northern Renaissance. The Southern Renaissance is Cesare Borgia. No moral qualms whatsoever. I mean, he had his brother-in-law murdered. Uh, we're not sure why. Maybe because he wanted to use his, his sister as, uh, uh, for a marriage alliance. I don't know. 
the northern renaissance uh people feel the rulers commit violent acts but they feel guilty about it uh the example i've 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 found helpful is you know henry the eighth worries about divorcing catherine Cesare Boyle would just have had her assassinated, and that would have been the end of it. Uh, if Mary Tudor were Cesare Borgia, she'd simply have had Elizabeth uh, executed. Uh, and certainly Elizabeth would not have waited 20 years, despite overwhelming evidence, before she had Mary Queen of Scots executed. Um, Cesare Borgia said, someone's in your way, you execute them. Yvonne is much more like Henry VIII than Elizabeth in this way than he is like the people Machiavelli is describing. Because he agonizes over it. Uh, he eventually makes uh, donations in memory of his victims. I don't think Yvonne is interested in glory. I think from Yvonne's perspective, glory would be the sin of pride. And uh, Yvonne would not have thought in those terms. In his own mind, Yvonne is working for the glory of God. I think the reason that Yvonne's arbitrary terror failed in the long run, is that he lost the war. If he had won the Livonian War, no one would have, I mean, cynically speaking, people would have overlooked how many people died achieving victory at home and abroad. If he had expanded Russia to the Baltic, if he conquered all of Livonia and made Muscovy a Baltic power, a lot would have been forgiven. But it didn't happen. Uh, now, you can argue that it is because Ivan used terror that Muscovy lost the war, but I think that would be simplistic. Uh, it is not solely because, certainly the terror contributed to the enormous economic depression that uh, marred the last years of Ivan's reign. But the Aprichna was only one of a number of factors. The Aprichna did not create the epidemics or the crop failures, which also contributed to economic depression. Ivan's reputation was solidified by the fact that he lost the Livonian War. Uh, if, he, uh, if he'd won that, uh, things would be different. He could not have won that war. I've argued it's a war he, couldn't, he could never have won, regardless of any other factors. It's a war he should never even have started. But it's very, it's very tricky. Uh, Ivan, after all, left a very complex legacy, uh, one of the greatest oddities of which is that down to the present, the old believers in Russia and the religious dissidents retain a very favorable memory of Ivan, because he presided over the church council that imposed the practices that they adhered to and which Patriarch Nikon in the 17th century changed. That's how they became all believers. So they approve of Ivan because he approved of the religious practices, how to make the sign of the cross and so forth, that they continued to practice. And that's ironic and strange, but it tells you that historical legacy is a question of vested interest. What are you looking for from Ivan? The imperial Russian emperors were very ambivalent about Ivan. They wanted as little to do with him as possible. The strongest evidence for which is that when they built a monument in 1862, which was supposedly the millennium of the existence of Russia, which is based upon the, the legend of the summoning of the Varangians in 862, which is pure fiction, left Ivan off the monument. This is definitely a slight. <laughs> I did not know that. Uh, this is this is definitely uh, created by. Uh, the enormous ambivalence towards Ivan in Imperial Russia. I mean, after all, Imperial Russian historians disagreed about Ivan completely uh, compared to Karamzin and Solovyov. I mean, uh, Ivan for some remained a tyrant and a despot uh, and uh, a villain. Uh, and for others, he, was, he had his flaws, but he was a successful state builder, which was Solovyov and, and, and some of the legal school. And Ivan remains uh, controversial, the word I don't like. Uh, what, it, what it means, in effect, is that Ivan's reign, the valuations of Ivan's reign, 
are a, a hot button topic to the to the to the present day. Uh, there are four rulers in Russian history: Ivan the Terrible, Peter the Great, Lenin, and Stalin. About what you can say if you ask someone what he thinks about any one of them, you know what he thinks about all of Russian history and Russia today. That's a very uh, elite company. Very few rulers have had the impact of those four upon the Russian historical memory and evaluations of Russia. And a, uh, a number of years ago, I read a uh, book by a scholar named Kevin Platt. On, uh, I, I, I'm very familiar with, with, I, with, with Kevin's book. I reviewed it, in fact. And it's actually and, so did I. You should have remembered that about the monument because I'm sure he mentions it. Yeah, I probably just forgot. What what made me think of, of Platt's book, uh, Terror and Greatness, was him mentioning that uh, even even Stalin, who, as you said, uh, you know, practiced his own brand of terror, uh, didn't let Eisenstein finish the movie because he was afraid people would draw the wrong analogies. Um. Eisenstein's film, uh, and as, and, uh, uh, aside from being a cinematic classic, uh, is astonishingly relevant to current Russian politics and uh, political mentality because it never grows old. That film is never going to be obsolete. However, it vastly complicates writing about Ivan the Terrible in Russia uh, because it's almost impossible to say anything about Ivan that most people aren't going to take as applying to Stalin. Some people, both on the left and on the right, do this deliberately. I mean, they want the analogy to be there. But trying to write objective history, uh, which evades that problem is very difficult because of your audience. Uh, and even large parts of, uh, even in the West, uh, many modern, many specialists in modern Russia and contemporary Russia will also interpret anything you write about Ivan the Terrible through the prism of what it says about Stalin. And it's just not helpful for understanding 16th century Russian history to think in 20th century historical terms. In Russian, the problem is particularly difficult because of, of vocabulary. I mean, one of the greatest Soviet and post-Soviet experts on, on, on Ivan the Terrible is Ruslan Skrinnikov. And if you look at his words, I mean, he uses the word for purge, which was used during the 1930s, chistka. Well, that's not a 16th century word. And when you start using vocabulary like that, you start saying things you may not be aware you're saying. I prom Someone once asked me when I said I was writing a book on Ivan the Terrible that, uh, to promise that I would never mention Stalin's name. <laughs> and, and other than historiography, I stuck to that. Uh, you can look at historiography during the Stalin period, but that's as far as you can go. But don't draw any comparisons between Ivan and Stalin. Which is exactly what many people reading the book will be looking for, unfortunately. <laughs> but it's 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 out of my hands to to stop them from doing so. My belief this is also my problem when I run into what's called Russian uh, the Russian political tradition. This is an attempt to to to. to uh, it's like talking about the Russian national character. These are abstractions that don't don't resonate with the way my mind works. I'm always looking for the peculiar, the particular in a certain period. Uh, my feeling is that uh, what's constant in Russian history is a negotiated political process. Uh, you can't say this is the authoritarian Russian political structure because there are plenty of authoritarian structures and traditions outside Russia and no country is immune to authoritarianism. Uh, uh, people say that to sort of put Russia down. It's nonsense. Uh, any particular authoritarian ruler is the product of a great variety of factors in his country's history. 
and nothing is determined, predetermined, or overdetermined. Uh, to argue that this is a political tradition removes the history from Russian history. It's as if nothing anybody does matters. It's all, always going to turn out a certain way. Well, it never turns out the same way twice. Uh, uh, you cannot compare. If it is true that Ivan and Stalin both engaged in mass terror, you cannot compare the two incidents without taking into account enormous differences, among other things, simply in technology and scale. I mean, Stalin is credited, or should say blamed, with the, for the deaths of as many people as lived in Muscovy during Ivan's reign. Population estimates for 16th century Muscovy are very, very unreliable, but the one I've seen most often is somewhere between 6 and 8 million people. Well, I mean, Hitler killed more Russians than that. And if you I, don't take scale into account, you're, 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 you're missing something. This is not to exonerate Ivan. Um, my argument in terms of, I mean, historian's argument is to explain, as, as uh, has been said before, historian is not to, 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 uh, uh, is to explain, not to apologize. But if Ivan was responsible for the death of even one innocent person, he's still a monster. Uh, he still was terrible. But you cannot compare differences on that level, on that, that level of scale. Say he was Stalin before Stalin. That's absurd. I think we've just illustrated uh, Isaiah Berlin's famous distinction between foxes and hedgehogs here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I um, uh, tend to be skeptical of grand schemas, uh, uh, but look look at Ivan the Terrible just in terms of Muscovite history. Uh, this is an article of mine which is already in print. Yes, someone asked a question which 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 she thought was simple. And that is, what is Ivan's relationship to, to Muscov- Muscovite political culture? And the answer is, there is no one answer. There are elements of Muscovite political culture before Ivan that Ivan retained. There are elements of Muscovite political culture that Ivan introduced. There are elements of, that Ivan introduced which were kept by his successors and elements that he introduced which were abandoned by his successors, including, as we've said, mass terror. The concept of political culture is dynamic. It's not static. It evolves. It changes. It's in constant flux because history changes. And therefore, to say, to expect the answer to be one-sided is, is, is misleading and unwarranted. Ivan contributed both negatively and positively to Muscovite political culture, but there was nothing he contributed which could not have been abandoned by his successors had they so chosen. The most uh, striking case is what is, oddly enough, uh, Ivan's conquest of Kazan. There are some people in Kazakhstan, in, in Tatarstan, who would love to abandon that one. But in terms of just political structure, that's lasted longer than anything else Ivan did. Because it's lasted down to the present, and nothing else has. But it's still a negotiated process. It negotiated a negotiated process which has gone in several directions since 1991. It's now in a retrograde phase, but at one time it was much more... Uh, that time had much more expensive rights. I'm in touch... Because of my previous work on Russia and the Mongols, uh, I have a number of contacts with people I've never met in, in, in Kazan, and they are really hypersensitive to, to describing Russia's conquest of Kazan, how you describe it. Uh, and people in historians in Russia who argue over whether Russia was an imperial power, whether Kazan was a colony. Well, the people, the view in Kazan and the view in Moscow are somewhat different on this question. I would expect they would be. 
Uh, there are no monuments to Ivan the Terrible's conquest of Kazan in Kazan. <laughs> yeah, we got um, enough time kind of for, for one more uh, point here. Sure. And what I wanted to what I wanted to ask you is what I thought was one of the most valuable aspects of your book was how you took this kind of realist approach towards where there's no evidence we just can't say you know mm-hmm. and and uh, so I guess what I was wondering is are there in your view are there questions we can ask about Yvonne that simply there's never going to be any evidence to answer versus where are kind of some open avenues for further uh, uh, research on, on Yvonne the Terrible, where we might actually have some some evidence that could be used to answer those. For a variety of reasons, uh, different reasons at different times, I was never able to go to Moscow and do research in the archives, but I've read a great deal, uh, everything I could. Uh, written by historians in Russia who have had access to the archives. And I'm, I'm strongly inclined to the belief that no one's going to go into the archive and find a document which will explain why Ivan created the Aprishna. It's just not going to happen. They didn't write documents like that. Uh, there are a lot of questions to which I think we can never get uh, definitive answers. Uh, Who set policy during the 1550s before Ivan was a full adult? We don't know. We have no evidence uh, because we had, they did not preserve transcripts of meetings of the Royal Council. They did not preserve policy proposals. We're never going to know. Nevertheless, uh, asking questions that cannot be answered is a very productive process. First of all, although we can never know, maybe it will inspire someone to find something which will answer the question. But in any event, at the very least, it encourages us to think about additional aspects uh, and to do the best we could, the, the best we can in trying to come up with tentative answers. The answers will always be only suggestive because we have no evidence, but they can still enable us to analyze aspects of Yvonne's reign, which shed further light uh, on the subject. Uh, one of the, 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 the bad words in historical studies is the word speculative. Uh, someone who's speculative is not paying attention to the evidence. Well, when you don't have any evidence, what alternative do you have <laughs> except to speculate? I mean, you can go to the archives for the next 30 years, and you know, considering the, how incredibly thorough the Russians have been in, in 16th century, doing 16th century archival history, uh, it, it is encouraging that there is still a lot more that they keep finding. But the most you can do is come up with your own interpretation. It can be convincing. It can be unconvincing. The, pro, the, the, the real question is, is it productive? Is it helpful? to help us to try to approach a better understanding of, of a subject we will never fully master, which is Ivan's personality and Ivan's impact on Russia. Not all questions are productive. Was Ivan insane is not a productive question. It leads us nowhere. What was Ivan's definition of, a, of, a, of, uh, of his own authority in practice? That's a useful question. We can go back to the charters he wrote to his complaints about Bayars who, 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 who are acting in ways he, doesn't, he disapproves, but for which he cannot order their execution. This is a way which enables us to get more, squeeze more data out of the documents we do have. And that's what I've tried to do in the book, is take a fresh look at all the published sources and ask, provide new answers to old questions, but even more importantly, provide new questions. And that is the contribution I hope to make to studies of Ivan the Terrible. Well, I think you you succeeded. You certainly prompted any number of questions in my mind when, uh, when I read thank your you. book. So uh, thank you very much for uh, being with us, Charles. It's a very interesting chat, and I uh, sure enjoyed the uh, enjoyed the book. I've been uh, waiting for such a book for a while. <laughs> You're so, very welcome. Your long okay. wait is over. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.